Freebooters Network. Hi, this is Devin Track from the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s Geek Out. In this episode, the hosts talk about the 80s cult classic movie, John Carpenter's The Thing. Before we get started, the head geek himself, Terrace Cassidy of Geek Nation Tours, would like me to ask you to check out some of the other shows available on the Freebooters Network. Here are some clips from episodes you may have missed. 40K Radio. I've been, I've been exceedingly busy on other projects recently. Yeah. I'm two to four days away from like putting to bed like one of my biggest projects for, net, for the past year and a half, which is going to really open up a lot of possibilities as to what I can do with my time. Awesome. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I need to start prepping stuff for Adepticon. <laughs> I, I, got my, I, I, got, I got stuff I want to do. I want, I want a hobby again. <laughs> Anonymous Tabletop. And welcome to episode 37 of the Anonymous Tabletop Podcast. Here we are, just before October. October we already with an Oktoberfest hangover. And we have our special guests, the Wapples, a very Wapalicious episode today. Hello. It's a very Wapalicious. Very yeah. Wapalicious. So. I thought he had a little more gusto with that. That was like yeah, a little... That was, that that was, was like a... Pathetic that intro, that, man. that was a little bit weak gusto. sauce. That was no, really that was pathetic Do you want me to do it again? Yes. Yeah, you can do it again. Go ahead. <laughs> I kind of oh, You're going to knock over all my shit. That's that what you're going to do. That was kind of pathetic. You are? But you know what? We're going to laugh at you and we're going to keep that... That's going to stay in the episode. Don't worry about this. Nothing gets taken from the episode except right. for his... You poke me. I'll be going into Drake Lewis' voice. The Nerd Herders. Hello and welcome to episode 123 of Nerd Herders, your home for all things geeky. My name is Ian Clark and I'm joined tonight by Andrew Howard and Dave Farr. And I switched it up because we haven't done it in so long So I ju- and we always have a hard time deciding who's going to say what. So I just introduced you guys. So, uh, so there. That was way easier. Why don't we do that every time? Yeah, that only took, us 100... <laughs> only took us 123 episodes to figure that out. And now on with the show. three of ego the 80s geek out podcast my name is ian clark and i'm joined as always by the hey sweden to my their norwegian mac mr a bradford anderson brad how are you tonight good evening i am very well thank you very much thank you for uh, joining me i think we are both uh, i think it's safe to say we're both pretty excited about what we're about to do here yeah we are this is this is big time this is a, a movie i think that had some profound impact on us, I think, as as young men, but as now adults looking back and kind of revisiting the whole thing, is it's quite a remarkable film. It is, and the film in question is 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell. Uh, great cast. We'll, we'll get into everything, but uh, yeah, uh, for Halloween, we thought it'd be fun to do our first movie breakdown, and The Thing was... Um, pretty easy decision we we bandied about a couple others and, and definitely movies we will get to uh brad and i both big movie fans and, and some seminal films from the 80s that really 
have uh, impacted us and, and left a lasting impression over the years as well and ones that we revisit often. But we thought this one would be a great one because it is it is such a fantastic movie and really didn't get its due until later. It this is I think this is kind of the epitome of a cult classic because it and we, we can talk about that a little bit here in a minute, but right. it didn't do well commercially, but people really discovered it later and now it is considered one of the greatest horror films of all time. Absolutely. So, yeah, The Thing, John Carpenter, uh, really at the height of his powers, as Brad and I were kind of going back and forth with some texts uh, leading into this, we were kind of talking about that. Carpenter had done, obviously, Halloween, which was, I believe, 1978, which really right. put him on the map. Prior to that, had done some directing, uh, I think some TV stuff, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which is actually a very good movie. Right. Uh, yeah. Had done that before, and... Uh, Let's see, we had Escape from New York was in there. Um, I think The Fog. And The Fog, yes, yeah. Fog. Which is one that I like a lot. My my older son, who likes uh, horror movies and, uh, and things like that, was asking me which of um, my favorites that he hadn't seen, and that was one that I pointed to because I really do like The Fog a lot. I think yeah, that one's really definitely. good. But, uh, yeah, so 1982, The Thing comes out and does not do well uh, at the box office. And a lot of people think that was maybe because it came on the heels of E.T. And, you know, you're obviously looking at a feel-good <laughs> alien movie. Right. And this is kind of the opposite. Yeah, th this film is anything but feel-good uh, from from the moment uh, we see the helicopter on screen uh, till the final scene. There's nothing good happening in this film that <laughs> that uh that is good for humanity shall we say <laughs> exactly uh so uh one thing i wanted to mention real quick too before we get into it is um this was a movie that in 1998 when uh, my wife and i moved to new hampshire and i started work uh at a newspaper here at first i didn't know if i was going to get enough hours so i i also took a second job at a video rental company when a video rental store when those still existed uh and uh it was right when dvd was new and i fairly early on i i bought a dvd player and they, they were pretty expensive at the time and dvds themselves were pretty expensive but at the time when i bought it i was able to purchase three movies i purchased blade nice. uh which is a great movie uh logan's run one of my favorite sci-fi movies and the thing was the third one so so i ended up watching all those movies a bunch but i also listened to the commentary tracks and the thing has probably one of the greatest commentary tracks you'll ever hear for a movie it's john carpenter and kurt russell they've worked together a bunch they obviously worked on big trouble in little china escape from new york this several other things so good rapport between them Great storytelling, great insight into how the movie was made. So I highly recommend the commentary track for this movie if you've never listened. Have you? You're nodding your head. Have you listened to the commentary on this I've one? I've listened to bits and pieces of it, but I I know exactly uh, what what you're alluding to. It, it doesn't get any more in depth uh, from the director's vision and then the lead actor's vision coming together in a, in a perfect helix. So. Yeah, it's it's great, and it's it's one that I've listened to multiple times. I don't think there's any other commentary track I've listened to more than once. So yeah, highly recommend that. Um, and one thing I want to ask before we get going: do you, do you remember the first time you saw the movie? <laughs> yes, I do. It was again re reverting back to the early '80s video disc world, where we in it's basically not quite the a laser disc format, but the video disc was a plastic house container that you put into a large machine, larger, twice the size of a VCR, 
goes inside one, you watch half the film, take it outside two, you watch the second half of the film. So yeah, I do distinctly remember it. And what drew what drew me to the film was was the cover. It's just a disturbing cover. You, it almost kind of reminds me of Scanners because with the guy's head and you know the the bolt screaming out. But in this regard, it's just so the title is just so the thing. It, it carries a lot more weight than if you actually developed a creature name around it. It's just there's nothing to describe what they experienced and what the what the viewer was going to see. So it's it's quite remarkable. So yeah. Very distinct memories of when I saw it the first time. Yeah, I saw it as a kid, and I think it, I, I, there were definitely a ton of things that I remembered. And for whatever reason, it wasn't a movie. There, there were a lot of movies that I watched over and over as a kid because mm. we would rent them multiple times or whatever it was. This one was not one of those, but it definitely left an impression on me. But I didn't, I didn't remember a ton about it. And then I remember catching it. I think I was even in college when I caught it on like TBS or something like that sure. and it immediately came back to me and I, and, and I, uh, I think I was in the dorm with, uh, I think Amy was with me at the time. She does not like scary movies. And it was one of those things where it was like, I, I, you don't understand. I haven't seen this movie in forever. I have to watch this movie. So I think right. she, uh, I think she put some headphones on and probably did some schoolwork, which was pretty <laughs> much, pretty much our college experience, Amy doing schoolwork and me trying to do anything but so, um, <laughs> but yeah. And then of course now I, I've seen it many, many times as an adult. So, um, yeah, one that, um, I definitely saw as a kid and I remembered, but it, it took, it took multiple viewings and kind of having that perspective of being grown up to, I think, appreciate it more for, for how brilliant it really is. Um, uh, one thing also to mention too, a little unusual in, for a John Carpenter movie, Carpenter himself did not score this film, although it very much sounds like he did. It's Ennio Morricone. Right who's best known for the uh, the spaghetti westerns, um, uh, like the uh, the Clint Eastwood ones and that famous... The, with the, the man with no name. Yeah. And the... <laughs> oh, yeah, the good... <laughs> that, the ugly baby. <laughs> yeah, that's his score, so that's, that's what he's known for. But he very much mimics a Carpenter-esque score with a lot of the synth. Right. And um, one thing that I kind of noticed on this viewing, I watched it a couple days ago, uh, the score is much more sparse than I remembered. There's not, it's not used a lot. So when it is used, it's, it's done for good effect. It's, there's a lot of long times between actual, uh, soundtrack and score right. in this movie. There's a, there's a lot of synth, you know, and having done the research as, as I'm sure you've done learning that, you know, they had a meeting, he, uh, you know, Carpenter went to court him in Italy and the partnership happened very quickly and then it ends up turning out that I think it's somewhere somewhere to 15 to 20 minutes of orchestral music are actually used in the entire film itself. Um, and then, as we both know, Carpenter had gone back to certain scenes and realized that the what Morricone had, had done was not quite going to fit. So he did his own kind of synth sounds to kind of fit into the action of what was happening in the film. So it's quite remarkable that a very well-respected, well-renowned um uh, film score did not portray or wasn't featured throughout the entire film. It was only in very sparse segments, as you noted, and uh, but it was to great effect when it when it didn't happen. Yeah, and uh, right off the bat, really, we get the um the that kind of that deep droning sound that kind of and the word that came to mind when as I was trying to pay attention to it as as the movie's opening is dread. It has yeah. like that that kind of impending doom feeling. My my thoughts exactly when I it reminds me of a 
slowed down uh, EKG machine, echocardiogram, where you get the kind of the weird pulsing. And, you know, I'm not sure if that, I mean, it's certainly we, as, as the film progresses, there's, you know, that, that segment of kind of drony music, synth music does come out numerous times, usually, you know, kind of, you know, f- very foreboding and almost kind of alluding to that there's something terrible that's about to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whether, it's on, definitely... whether on screen or not, we just get that anytime that, that drony pulse comes out, you know, there's something about that yeah, is not going to be very favorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shit's about to go down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, this one, I know we've had the explicit tag on the other ones. This one maybe have, may have a little more profanity just because some of the best lines in the movie are. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, so I get excited about it. So there, there may be some more, uh, some more profanity in this episode, just to <laughs> warn you. But um, uh, one thing I wanted to note, too, uh, very unusual. This would not be done today. The cast itself is great. Not a single woman in it. No, and that's interesting you say that because the – prequel that that they did in 2011 featured a woman and while that film did work and get us to the point of where this uh 82 film basically kicks off the woman's position in the film probably wasn't as necessary i think they probably could it was probably a sign of the times you know more of a male cast not really and plus like anything they were in a scientific laboratory in antarctica probably not necessarily going to put a singular woman in that type of environment with a bunch of men for, you know, six to eight months at a time with, before they get any sort of um, reinforcement uh, supplies, that sort of thing. So yeah, very interesting that there's no women in this film. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you touched on something there. I, I, I it's gone already, but uh, the, so, Oh, it opens and it opens with something that, and again, I've seen this movie dozens of times, but I, I still occasionally forget that it opens with a f- spaceship flying yeah. into Earth. And which is- it, it, insane because if you think of all the other films re- relative to the time, my first thought watching this again, seeing you know the disc flying across the screen and then suddenly land goes into Earth. Kind of similar to what we saw in the the original Predator film with when yes. that the thing was disembarked or disengaged and went towards and landed in South America. Um, I had noticed that the first time. I'm not sure if I never paid attention to it. Um, but when you see the ship kind of head towards Earth, you're not really quite sure how large it is of a vessel. It comes right towards the camera. It's fairly, you know, very uh, very circular like a Frisbee. But later in the film, we do, uh, in fact, learn how large this vessel actually is. And then in the prequel, which it was, again, out in 2011, it explores that vessel much more thoroughly. Right, right. We should also mention this is a remake of sorts of a, I think it's a 1950s movie, uh, The Thing from Another World, which I've seen before uh, and did enjoy. Uh, And actually, they use a little bit of footage from that movie uh, later on in in The Thing, which is kind of cool. But um, yeah, so the spaceship coming in, I almost, I've seen the movie so many times, I know obviously what happens, but it made me wonder seeing the movie for the first time, if that is almost, and and maybe you kind of forget anyway, once the movie kicks in that you saw right. the flying saucer, but, but I wonder if some ways, if that's a, uh, if the movie would be better served without that at the start. I, I actually agree with that because we, we learn later on in the film based on some scientific, you know, observations based on where this ship 
ultimately it sounds like it crashed from what we what we uh it doesn't appear to be losing its flying momentum when it's going through space and then heads towards earth it just kind of looks like it's headed in that direction we do later learn that it did in fact crash and that i think the the figure based on one of the scientific observations was it, it's probably been buried for close to a hundred thousand years which is probably would have benefited not seeing it and then have them just learn that based on finding it, you know, in the uh, in the ice. Yeah, and it's it's obviously tough perspective wise because we've seen it so many times to, but right. uh, with like a fresh viewer, I wonder I wonder how they take that. But um, right. but yeah, so we so we get that opening and then the great uh, opening um, the title sequence, which is really cool. The with like the burning uh, superimposed uh, letters, which which yeah. looks really cool. Very cool. Uh, and then we get uh, Antarctica. We we get the establishing shot, uh, bright day, but just snow everywhere. Norwegian helicopter chasing a dog, and um, this is another thing that's kind of funny. They, and I like that they do this. There's no subtitles. The the Norwegians none like when whatsoever, they, right? Yeah, they land. They're yelling things, and I guess in Norwegian they're actually saying that's not a dog. Like like it's not, that's not what it is. You know, so it's kind of funny. They're kind of almost giving the plot away, right? But they're not. You know, for anyone that doesn't speak uh, Norwegian, it's just we we don't know what's going on. So, right. um, and you get um, so so there's this crazy scene. You the chopper's chasing the dog, shooting at the dog. The chopper lands. The guy gets out and with a gun and is just chasing the dog. <laughs> Another guy gets out ready to to toss a uh, a grenade. Right. Um, public service announcement: Do not throw or handle grenades wearing heavy winter gloves. Right. Uh, Absolutely, because that yeah, when when you pull when you when when you pull it apart and you lose control and then you stare at it for a couple seconds and then you try to either dig it out of the ice, it would have been smarter for him to run, but he clearly thought he was going to be able to grab it and then throw it, and we all know what the outcome of that was. So yeah, so helicopter <laughs> explodes. The other um, we should mention too. Sorry, there there is a little bit of an establishment of the of the group. At the um, at the outpost as well, we see McCready, uh, Kurt Russell, and right away they establish McCready's character uh, as a loner. It's the middle of the day. Right. He's drinking by himself. Um, everyone else is being social. It shows a quick shot of like their rec room. There's guys like playing uh, playing pool right. um, or ping pong uh, or something yep. and ping playing pong. cards. Yep. yep. There's a pinball machine. There, there's a lot of people just hanging out. McCready is drinking by himself and has his own shack. We see later that everyone else, it looks like all of their barracks are yes. and their sleeping quarters are right there in the uh, within the the research station. So he's immediately cast as a loner, which I think is kind of neat. And of course, with the entire theme of the movie, mm. that ends up being. Uh, important but i i thought it was interesting to um to see how they established that very early on that that mccready's a loner uh so uh yeah helicopter blows up and uh we see uh gary who it's funny there are a lot of defined roles we know mccready's a helicopter pilot doc copper's a doctor you know we obviously some of the others are scientists gary is um clearly the leader here but it doesn't really give him any kind of title but right. we see him he he acts quickly when there's um you know the the norwegian is is <laughs> charging into right. camp and shooting things shooting with a rifle yeah <laughs> and wounding wounds one of the um uh one of the research people and gary acts quickly and shoots and, and shoots in the head and kills the uh the norwegian um with the gun and um 
it's uh and we should mention him too i'm i'm there's some guys that i know just by name and some some of the cast members i always i have to look up cuz uh yeah. cuz there's so many character act, actors in this yeah um, it's, it's amazing and i and i think you know based on what we got for the final acting lineup um and from what i've read over the last couple of days the amount of people that were potentially considered for all these roles was phenomenal it was in- incredible the people that they were looking to cast in some of the major and some of the minor roles for the American squad. So I was, I think we got, I think we got the right lineup though. Yeah. So it's Donald Moffat. A lot of people might know him. He was in uh, one of the Harrison Ford, uh, Jack Ryan movies as the president. Um, He was in the right stuff. He's been in a few things. So, so Donald Moffat's his name. Um, And, and he does a nice, there's a nice bit of subtle acting as kind of things like he shoots and kills the the Norwegian and there's a quick moment of him like getting his jacket on and going out to assess the situation and you can you can see that this is probably not a man that's that's been in combat or anything like you can see the weight on his face of what right. has happened that yeah. he's just had to take a life right i mean he he basically i mean we we're given uh Norwegians uh flying after this dog that are armed to the teeth with a uh, you know flash grenades or regular grenades and an assault rifle uh they can neither get the dog but you know uh donald moffat's character knocks out the window aims and with a one shot uh kills the norwegian with a a perfect headshot so (laughs) yeah um so again good establishment early on of the uh, of the characters and the cast. Uh, some of the other people to mention, too, um, Doc Copper is played by uh, Richard Dysart, who uh, most people know for L.A. Law. He's from Waterville. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, he's uh, so, yeah, Waterville, Maine, where uh, oh. old, old stomping grounds. I was born in Waterville. Were you born in Waterville? I was born at Seton Hospital, yeah. Okay, me too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so he's uh, he's also from Waterville. He, he does an interesting thing, too, and they talk about it in the commentary track. He has a nose ring. Which... Uh, yeah, very uncharacteristic for the time period, for the most part. Yeah, for a doctor, too. Yeah, and, for a doctor. And I guess... Yeah, uh, the carpenter says in the commentary track that Dysart, that was Dysart's choice. He that was a choice that he made for the character. Interesting. So, yeah, it's it's and it doesn't it doesn't come into effect in any way in the movie. It's just an interesting character choice. Right. Uh, of course, we get Wilford Brimley, who's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, yeah, love love Wilford Brimley. Um, Knowles, uh, who is apparently mm-hmm. the um, the. Uh, research facilities cook um, played by TK Carter. A lot of people might remember him. He was on uh, punky Brewster, uh, did a bunch of other stuff. Um, uh, of course, uh, Keith David. Keith played, David. Oh yeah. Keith, Keith <laughs> David is phenomenal. His, a lot of people, you, you've probably seen him in other movies. Uh, he was, he was in, there's something about Mary, um, yep. but his voice, he does a lot of voice cause his voice is so distinct. He plays the voice of the, uh, of the president on Rick and Morty. Um, yeah. 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 Um, but he's great. Um, so yeah, just a, a, a good cast, a whole bunch of people that, you know, you've probably seen in other things. Um, they also do a nice job of establishing Palmer, who apparently I guess is the other helicopter pilot. Um, but he's, he's clearly a stoner. He's smoking a joint the first time you see him and, uh, they, they set him up pretty early. Um, and then they also do, we get a scene of the dog that was being chased, uh, looks like a Malamute or a Husky, uh, that was being chased by the helicopter is allowed into the camp and we see it underneath the, um, I think it's under the pool table or ping pong table or whatever. And the music starts. Yeah. And so that gives you that hint that something is off here with the dog. 
And to, to that point, they also show when they're uh, bringing the Norwegian body into the facility after, after he was shot, the, uh, um, the dog standing on what appears to be like a crate looking out the window. So the, the dog clearly is way more intelligent than what anyone in the American scientific camp is aware of at that time. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, too, because the and this is great in the commentary track, they had a like a fake dog stand in. But apparently that dog's acting ability and ability to follow commands was unbelievable. Like there there are some shots where it's uh, a fake dog and then Mm. there are some some shots where it's the real dog. And you get confused watching it because I was trying to pick it out and I'm like, oh, that's clearly the fake dog. And then you see, no, its ears move or it blinks or something. You're like, holy shit, that's that's the real dog. So um, it, here's a trivia point for you. Uh, do you know what the dog's name is in in real life? I it, do not. Jed. Jed. Jed the dog. Jed but, the dog. Jed and, yeah, the dog. And I don't think he. And I think there was a, a footnote somewhere where he actually wasn't mentioned in the credits at the end. Or but I may have missed it. But I think that there was a little side note that you know he was the uncredited uh, villain of the film. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. That dog does does some great work. Um. We get uh, we get a little bit more look at the camp life after things have settled down. Um, T.K. Carter's Nall's characters uh, in the kitchen. Uh, he's got "Superstitious" by Stevie Wonder playing, which is I, that song choice has to be on purpose. I would think absolutely. I I, I can't see any other reason why it wouldn't have been uh, strategically placed like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, so we get Doc Copper and McCready fly to the Norwegian camp. Uh, which is all burned out. Something's clearly happened there. Cool, cool footnote, uh, trivia note. They that's actually after they blew up at the end of the movie where they blow up the American camp. They actually that's where they filmed the uh, the Norwegian camp bits was in the burned out um, American right. camp. So they they reused the set for that, which is kind of cool. Um, and clearly, and again, I haven't seen the prequel, so I assume all of this is, is explained in the prequel, but you, you could see that some crazy shit has gone down at the Norwegian camp. Absolutely. There's a, there's a guy with his throat and a wrist cut. Um, there's, um, they, they find a block of ice where something has been cut out of it. Right. And then there's the discovery of a strange, burned out, deformed roughly vaguely humanoid looking creature that seems to have two heads fused together it's it's very it, it's a nice job of of less is more where they don't right. show you all of it but you see enough to know that something right. is really messed up best line at when they're when both uh, uh kurt russell's character and they're looking out over it he leans in and he's like is that a man in there yeah because <laughs> yeah the, the camera angles were perfect you don't you you kind of can tell it was burned out and that it was smoldering at one point fairly recently, but the camera angles from behind it. So, whoops, so you can actually kind of determine that there's some sort of life form. It is until I think one or two scenes later when they actually are in the autopsy room looking at it, where you actually see the magnitude of just what this, this, this cadaver or carcass actually is. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's very well done, and all practical effects uh, done by uh, Rob Botin, who um, went on to do a bunch of other cool stuff, and and I think that's one thing that makes this movie work so well is the practical effects. Nowadays, so much of this would be done with CGI. Right. The the practical effects in this movie are insane. They're so good, and yeah. they look real because they yeah. made them. Animatronics uh, combined with puppetry is 
Uh, and this was, I think, part and parcel for a lot of films of this era coming out of the 70s, 70s into the 80s, just kind of going down the, the, the list fairly quickly. Um, you know, American Werewolf in London, um, where they basically, yeah, you see the transformation and it's really well done, you know, kind of a start-stop, basically. It's very similar to what we see as the as we begin to learn more and more about the creature, its evolution, what its kind of purpose is inside the camp. You get to learn more, and, and they really, I think, did extremely well with... I think it's. it seemed like they were on a fairly limited budget for the film. I know, obviously, budgets always will go over what their what the predictions are. But I think they did a lot with what with little, kind of uh, what, what they had access to and were very creative in getting to the points of when the monster was delivered on screen. Yeah, for sure. Um, they uh, they bring the burned out body back to, to their camp. Uh, there's an autopsy performed by uh, Blair. Um, uh, Wilford Brimley's character. Uh, you get another good look at the, the practical effects too. The body itself, you get a little better look. And then they've like, I think they put like real organs inside that they... Yes. So, so it has that authentic look to it, which is, is really adds to it a lot, I think. And uh, you could see kind of the, um, you, we don't know how long these guys have been there, but it's clear that it's been a while because you, you kind of see the, the tedium that they have. There's a good, uh, more a little bit more character establishment shot of Palmer and Childs uh, who look like they, um, they share a room and they're, they're smoking a joint together and watching old TV shows. Right. Uh, and uh, other people are like playing cards or shooting pool and things like that. So um, I think for for as big a cast as it is and and the limited amount of time that you have to establish kind of what goes on there, I think I think Carpenter does a nice job. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from the perspective that we do have a, just a very overview uh, background of some of the characters. I mean, it's I think it's kind of good because we know they're in this isolated situation uh we don't necessarily need to know all their backstories per se and i think the kind of the sparseness of the the storyline that is you know unfolding before their eyes whether they realize what's happening or not kind of bodes well also in addition to the kind of the environment that they're in inside the building as well as the the freezing cold aspect of you know what would be called their antarctica yeah and, and it's very much a a claustrophobic feel because you know they they can't go anywhere they this is where they are right completely locked in and uh, and, it, and it seems every other scene a big storm is coming through so and we and we know <laughs> that there are no choppers taking off and there's really nowhere to go so uh, that was the the thing they're they're locked in and they're in for a very very difficult unhappy ride very soon yeah yeah uh, we also get um, our first look at Clark, uh, played by Richard Mazur, uh, who's great. He's been in lots of stuff. Um, interesting. I, I like what Carpenter does here. He he gives he he presents Clark as sort of a red herring. He he seems a little off, a little unusual right from the get go. And then of course later there's a lot of suspicion about him being infected. Right. Right. So they they do a nice job establishing him as a little different from the get go. Right. Uh, uh, they have him put the the dog from the Norwegian camp in the pen with their dogs, right. and it goes from about zero to sixty in like two seconds. <laughs> Literally two seconds. It, yeah. <laughs> oh. The door barely closes to that hallway until we actually hear the dog start barking, and then the amazing special effects sounds that attribute the oh, yeah. transformation of the dog into the alien life form. Yeah, it's like a deep guttural howling almost it almost reminds me a little of uh at the end of um uh the 70s version of invasion of the body snatchers the yes that's, that's that. 
And, and it's it's funny because this, you know, the the film, obviously, as we begin to learn very soon after the dog's transformation, you know, uh, that the the organism is some some type of parasite. Um, and my I think my fascination part with this film and stuff from the kind of the late 70s, early 80s um, was the fact that aliens or things that can take control of the human body bother the hell out of me. You know, yeah, yeah. The thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, uh, there, and there's a host of other ones of just where the human is immediately overtaken. It is completely almost annihilated from either the scene or the entire film. And then it's not even like an, uh, an alien overlord coming in. It is something that comes in to infect and destroy and conquer that way. And that is, I think kind of what, what bothered me and frightened me a lot to kind of keep me coming back to this film over the years. It's like, I'm fascinated, but it also really bothers me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. Cause it is, it's, it's horrific. And it, I mean, it, it, immediately and again the practical effects are insane the dog's yeah. face splits in like four four different locations yeah. yeah these tentacles come out and it just starts uh, i mean it's like uh, spitting some sort of nerve agent at the dog that's trying yeah. to get out of the pen other dogs are barking i mean it's so frenetic the camera shots you're, you're getting the creature the hissing sound the wailing noise it makes as it's trying to lock on its next target and you're sitting there white knuckling. I was sitting white knuckling on the couch. I still white knuckle when I see this. I'm like, oh my god, those dogs are, you know, they're shit out of luck. They're in an enclosed space with an extraterrestrial organism that is going to assimilate and kill them all. I mean, ma. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And then, then that kind of the the camp is alerted, right? And they come into just an insane scene as this the creature is now kind of sprouted two arms, but like with kind of three fingers. Yeah. An eyeball opens up in the middle right. of it. These tentacles are everywhere. It's, it's, and it's complete. And, and the size of it, I mean, you look at the dog, uh, and this, and the organism that comes out of this dog is Eiffel tower compared to the actual form of, of the (laughs) Husky or Malmute. It's just incredible. It's knocked out half the lights. They're trying to get the lights on. Uh, and then I think a line that comes in shortly thereafter, uh, 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 to um, uh, Keith David's character, he's like, Childs, yeah, Childs. He's like, get the blow, get, get the flamethrower. I mean, that and that line in itself is, and he like questions him, get the flamethrower. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's yeah, Greedy said, get the flamethrower. Yeah, 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 because he hasn't seen what's going on yet. So no. he, yeah, he goes down and they they burn it, um, and uh, immediately go in and they have to like put out the fire and everything. And you're, that's a good point about the size of it. I never really thought about that. I wonder if it had already assimilated maybe one or two of the other dogs. And that was why the form was, was larger, the mass. Larger. I mean, that's what I thought too, because it, um, there was like, it seemed like there were maybe five to six dogs in there and we, the, the camera angles were panning so quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this thing is, is hell bent on absorption and it clearly took no time whatsoever to get, uh, control of that of, of the pen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, so so they they burn it down, um, and then we get a, another autopsy scene. Uh, Wilford I, Brimley's phenomenal in the this. He's great in the whole movie, yes. but he's so good in this autopsy scene because he's just so he he's very matter of fact about everything, and he's just right. he's 
like pointing at stuff and he's like he's like like you know this part here that's not dog you know he's right. like he's he's just really he's really good and very believable um and uh he this is also the first time where the paranoia kicks in he yeah. asks clark how long were you alone with that dog right. you know and he, he tells somebody else he's like watch you know keep right. an eye on clark and um so you that that paranoia Right. begins now because right. we've seen that this is a creature an organism that wants to take over other organisms mm-hmm. and imitate it like right. the, and, and blair says that he's like it was trying to imitate our dogs right so yeah it's, it's so that that's real the, the movie that scene i think in the dog pen is where the movie just kicks into another gear absolutely and, um, does yeah yeah um so they start to look over the norwegians uh video and that's where the um they have some footage from the thing from another world in there which is very nicely uh spliced in but you see that this was a massive spaceship the the one that we saw at the start in the ice and they blew it out of the ice and um they actually go out to the crash site and they find the block of ice where the the creature itself uh was probably thrown from the craft or crawled out right um more paranoia stuff is they find some ripped clothing. Um, they don't know who's, uh, whose it is. Um, and uh, this is when we get Blair. Uh, Wolford Brimley's great. His the, the old-ass computer <laughs> graphics, but he does the whole calculation. Yes, exactly. And that, and that basically, th- those calculations are absolutely frightening, not just for the camp itself, but for all of humanity if uh, this organism gets off antarctica <laughs> yeah yeah just how quickly it will assimilate the entire human race it's, think, uh, and, it's insane and i threw you the figure it was i think it was twenty-seven thousand hours before total uh world assimilation and that's a frightening thought too <laughs> yeah yeah that's it so yeah so so blair has now um He's figured out what's going on. Uh, we get the scene where they they move the bodies into the storage area. Um, right. Mac and uh, Fuchs uh, talk, and be, uh, they go out in uh, one of the the snow vehicles uh, or the chopper. Maybe they're sitting out there because um, Fuchs has gone through um, Blair's notes and realizes that that the creatures are not dead. There's still right. cellular activity. They are not dead. Right. Um, that itself, upon learning that, is absolutely frightening because that is like every horror movie that's really quality. From a from a zombie bite, you get transferred, you turn into a zombie. From a xenomorph face hugger, you turn into a xenomorph. You're you're a host. I mean, everything. Something about the late seventies and eighties and alien infections and hosting body <laughs> hosting things really took a foot and it's still like i said th- those are some of my favorite of the genre films alien invasions but through subversion through taking over the body it's just absolutely disturbing and really well will put together that whole end of the 70s early 80s you know because i think a lot of times the slasher films dominated it's part of the mid 70s but then the advent of really unique films that uh, like we said at the beginning of the show didn't take uh didn't take hold with audiences it sounds like you know they you know he's meticulous you know carpenter's meticulous in the way he approaches things but i think you know he ended up guiding this film exactly where it needed to go um at every single point and as from the sparseness of it all to the breadth of the full revelation of you know the creature not so early into the film it was probably like 20 25 minutes in when we actually got to see you know the the breadth of what the hell is going on 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. The the pacing is very deliberate and very very. I like the pacing. I think it Absolutely, moves. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's. I don't think you could call it slow, but it's very deliberate and it and but it continues to give you information. Right. Which and it builds, and I I think that works really well. Um. So uh. Yeah, we get the they're moving the bodies into storage. We get that you know the classic horror type uh, trope yes. where the something under the the blanket moves. Right. Um. Bennings is taken over. Um, he goes outside kind of mid transformation. He's still got kind of that creepy, like hook arm thing hook and arm. disturbing as all hell. Yeah. Yeah. And it, his eyes, something's off with his eyes. And then you get that again, that, that just wailing moan. That's so he's, unearthly. He's, it, and I, I immediately identified as soon as I heard that, that is the Donald Sutherland invasion. Of the body snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. With yeah. a little bit of like, um, some sort of echo or, or yeah, something totally. added to it to make it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, they have no choice but to to burn him. They kill him with the the flamethrower. Um, so now now it's serious. Now they've had their first infected human. Their first you know fellow um, research station uh, member right. has been taken over. So now now things are serious. And um, then it moves on to the the great uh, Wilford Brimley, the Blair freakout scene where he's trying to sabotage everything. Yes. Uh, the chopper, yeah. yeah, the the um their computer equipment. He's killed the dogs. Right. Um, they uh they they have to subdue him and lock him in the tool shed. Right. Um, and this is when he says that the great. It's it's real simple. It's two words, but the way he says it, it's it's great. He says, "Watch Clark." Watch Clark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's so even though they they think he's gone crazy, he's still he's trying to um give them hints as to what he, what his insight is on the situation. Yeah, I had to look up how old Wilfred Brimley was in this because he he seems old, and it's one of those things where it's not <laughs> it's not just that when when we were kids he seemed old. He seemed old, right? Like he seemed he seemed like an older man, right? I call ever seeing him in a movie where he wasn't, you know, <laughs> right? Wilfred Brimley, <laughs> the old Wilfred Brimley. I mean, I right. he know he had an old. acting career that well preceded uh, the, the this Carpenter film, but I've only ever seen him in TV shows and uh, and other films as old Wilford Brimley. Yeah, yeah, we're on commercials talking about yes. his diabetes. Diabetes. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, do you want to take a guess as to how old he was in this movie? God. Uh, 54? He was only 48 in this Whoa, movie. Oh, my God. Okay. Isn't that crazy? A couple of years older than us. Yeah, I That's know crazy. shit. And he looks he looks way older than we do. <laughs> he does. Jesus. He does. Like, I get it in, like, the 50s and 60s when people looked older because everybody smoked yes. back then. Right. Their faces look like baseball gloves. It was like, <laughs> like, like I get that. But he, yes. boy, he, I was shocked. I was like, he's got to be in his mid fifties in this movie. I mean, he's nope. literally always looked the same as far as I, like, I'm just going through my memory banks and looking at every face that I've ever seen him in the film. He's, it's got like the very kind of jowly face. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he's still alive. God bless Wilford Brimley. He's still alive. I was going to ask that, and I probably should have looked that up. I was like, as I was looking over the cast, I'm like, okay, which one of these people have actually passed? I was thinking, well, for Brimley, he's probably no longer with us. I'm surprised he's still here. He is, yeah. That's so good was, to hear. Yeah, I was, I was, I was happy to hear that. Um, so, uh, so we get Childs, Keith David, asking if, if it was a, if I was human. Right. Or, you know, would you know, how would you know if I was human or not? And so that it starts kind of the whole conversation about what's 
what's going on. And I did something in this movie. We'll get to it. I have my notes for it. I did something watching this for the the other day that I had never done before, never thought about. Mm-hmm. And I was I was afraid that I might have found a hole in the movie. Turns out I didn't. But okay. I went through. I listed all the cast. And I tried to figure out who was the first infected. Ooh. And I was like, oh, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe there's maybe that they didn't account for that, but they did. And I'll go over it with you. And it's very cool because I went through and, and I, there's two possibilities. Okay. And one, I think, is who it is. So um, we'll go over that. Um, but um, so the, the blood is destroyed. They, they talk about coming up with a blood serum test. Uh, right. Somebody got to the blood. So that was sabotaged. Again, more distrust, more of that right. unease. The paranoia uh, is building inside the camp. Yeah, and uh, then Windows freaks out. The um, we don't. Uh, he's seen, shown as I guess the radio communications type yes. guy. Yeah. Um, he freaks out, tries to get a gun. Um, again, they they defuse the situation, but the tension just continues to yeah. ramp up. Um, there's uh, uh, there's a great scene as they're so they they take the blood that's been sabotaged and they take it out and they put it in the snow and they burn it with the flamethrowers. Right great scene with all of them around they're all dressed in their parkas they're outside in the freezing cold but there's a great scene there just has all of them together you get good shots of their faces and kind of the intensity um of what's happening and mccready with that great line he says i know i'm human right Um, and it pans (laughs) around and and you just get a great group shot as mccready talks and it's just a really nice scene yeah agreed uh, so then, uh, Fuchs, we see Fuchs alone in there. The lights go out. Right. Um, so, so we don't really know what's going on there. They go out to, to visit Blair in the shed. Um, he's, uh, there's a funny little thing that they don't even make mention of it, but it's there. But did you notice he's, he's made a noose? There's yes, like a noose. The noose yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was very not so subtly placed right next to him. Yeah. And, um, I, I, and, to, and to that, you know, speaking more of that scene, I love it when they just, you know, it's, they've got like the cell door open, you know, it's McCready's face peeking in on him yeah. and he's just like, I, I don't want to be out here anymore. I want to come in. I feel fine. I'm better now. Like he's doing all the justifications yeah. and no one's buying it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's just that little eye slit door that they've yes. opened. Yeah. yeah. And he's, he's like, I'm here. I hear things out here. Strange right. things. Strange things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's arguing to come back in. They, they right. do not let him back in. No. Um, now this is an interesting part. They find Fuchs burned body or what they assume is Fuchs. It's got the, the wire rim glasses and the, bo- yes. That's an interesting thing because that's never explained. I wondered if you if you had a theory on that. Okay. Well, yes and no. Uh, the to to kind of go back to the 2011 prequel. There is one scene in that film where the alien itself has assimilated one of the uh, Norwegian staff members, um, and the female character I don't remember her name. She notices that there's blood inside the shower. So something, you know, transformed inside the shower. Um, and she noticed that the bottom of the shower are human teeth fillings. Oh. So the fillings, obviously, we learn in that film um, that the uh, the alien species cannot, it can only assimilate organic, organic biological. Sure. It cannot do anything that's non-organic. So as, thinking about that when I was watching it last night, I thought the same thing. 
his glasses. Um, was it a ploy? Did someone grab the glasses off him and then throw them there to kind of deflect as to who the actual body was? Or was that in an attempt to assimilate and something went wrong? I just, I'm, that's a really good question. I'm not 100% certain why, but they did, the glasses were very prominent in that scene to kind of give credence to who the, who the character was. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. And uh, um, yeah, I wondered about different theories for that one. Um, we also get uh, the scene, there's a big snowstorm hitting them now. And uh, they go out, they want to go check on Max uh, shack because he said he, he left the lights on when he left. And the lights are uh, left the lights or sorry, turned them off. Right. And they are on now. Right. So they go to... Um, they go to check it out. Uh, Nalls cuts Mac loose. They're on a like a tether line together because the visibility yeah. is so bad. Uh, cuts him loose and goes back. And um, we start to get hints too that uh, Norris uh, is starting to have chest and and heart yes. issues. Um, we get the um, the awesome visual of Kurt Russell as his McCready coming back in nearly frozen to death, like literally icicles yeah. in his beard and, yeah. and all over him. Uh, and he's got, uh, he's got dynamite and he's just, he's threatening to blow the entire camp up if they don't let him back he in. He was more than angry. He was, <laughs> yes. he was at a level of anger. And it's funny. I think we can just briefly talk about the way um, Kurt Russell acts in this film. I mean, there's definitely aspects. I'm at, I was looking at the, kind of some of his main characters that I've fell in love with over the years. Uh, obviously, Snake Plissken being one of them. Um, uh, uh, what's his name from Big Trouble in Little China? Jack Burton. Jack Burton. So there's there were very many Kurt Russell isms that he's carried throughout his characters in many ways, you know. And I think yeah that in that moment when he had the the hand of the stick of dynamite and he had the flame ready to go, you know, he was basically he meant business. No one's gonna fuck with him at this point. He's in control of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great scene. They try and subdue him, and they can't. Right. That's what's great. They they we earlier we saw them. They were able to take down Blair yeah. as a team. They're not able to 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 um to subdue McCready, and he he you know tells him he's serious. He's he's gonna blow the place up. But then uh, Norris begins to have a heart attack. Right. So we get uh, just an insane scene where oh. Doc Copper is about to, he's going to use the defibrillator on, yes. uh, on Norris and essentially Norris's chest opens up into a giant set of jaws that chop off Doc Copper's arms. Terrible, amazing scene. It's, it's, it's so vivid. And that if there's one scene of, of a, an attack in this film, it's this one, because you don't expect that to happen. You you think, oh, poor guy's having a heart attack. You know, he did the initial, um, you know, uh, uh, what do we call it? Defibrillator, um, yeah. Defibrillator, got that, didn't work, and then does, like you said, does the, going to go for the, uh, the routine, press the chest, and his arms go right in, and they are bitten right off. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's a one-two punch because they – the defibrillator and his hands punch right through the chest cavity yeah. and you can, and inside is just gross and horrific. And that in itself is shocking. And then these giant jaws just chomp closed like a steel trap and his yes. arms are gone like a bear and, trap. And they take the arms right off at the elbows. Yeah. And uh, in the commentary track, they talk about, they got a, uh, a double amputee to do yeah. that uh scene uh who's someone missing who's i believe is missing his arms below the um the elbow right. and uh they put kind of like a he turns his face away so you can't quite see but they put kind of like a, a richard dysart mask on him to make it look right but um <laughs> right but it's yeah it's just it's it's horrifying and it's so sudden and again you get that thing where it's like 
it, it failed to assimilate Norris. Was it because right. there was some medical issue or something there? His heart couldn't take it. So. Right. I mean, it's and it's amazing because every attempt that this creature does to try to assimilate, it does so, you know, you know, a lot of it happens off scene. Some of the, at the beginning of the film, we see some of the stuff happening on scene, but there's also a mixture of it happening off scene, which kind of bodes to the, you know, the uh, the suspiciousness of the environment that they're in. You don't know now. You now, as as a viewer, you're beginning. Okay, if he's been infected, who else is infected? You know, and I have a question for you. Now, are we to assume that this is a singular creature trying to just jump from? assimilation to assimilation or is it a singular creature that has a cell structure that can spread because it seemed like i i think it can definitely spread because when they do the blood test they say that each each individual part is a is its own organism an organism and that's frightening itself because then it seems to because now based on what we're what we're seeing this this complete frenetic chaos on the kind of the table with the arms getting chewed off now you're beginning to wonder oh my god who else is potentially infected and now this is when the, the the where the train literally goes off the off the rails of everyone now suspect no one is trustworthy you can't believe anything that they're talking about and what's happening <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh um is everything okay there at your apartment you yeah cool? it's just some people outside yelling outside okay all right as long as it's not the cops <laughs> oh no cops come out all right <laughs> Uh, not today. Uh, and, and so within that scene, which is already insane, then you get the whole part with Norris's head literally separating from his body. And there's like all this like sinew and, and just gross stuff shooting everywhere. Yeah. And that that effect is insane. The, just the how... spider legs that all just start to, sp- you know, again, we see the kind of the spider style creatures legs come out from the head, kind of very similar to what. The, what we saw with the kind of the tendrils and tentacles of the initial yeah. dog transformation. And it, it now proceeds to, you know, it has that, that crazy tongue tube thing that allows it to pull itself across the floor. Yeah. It, yeah. It does that. And then it sprouts those spider legs yep. uh, from the head, which is the head's upside down too. Yes, which and it has almost like, thing. yeah. And then it has like two like eye stalks, almost like, um, like a slug. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's incredibly disturbing and then it leads to arguably the best line in the entire movie from palmer uh, who says you gotta be fucking kidding (laughs) a line that's so iconic that uh have you seen did you see it or it chapter two i haven't seen the second one yet okay in the second one they completely mimic this scene a a head sprouts legs and one of the characters actually says the line no shit that's yeah, awesome. so it's yeah, it's like total homage. Um, so um, again, the just the the sound design too, uh, as they burn it, like the the, mm. the sounds and the screams as it's burning because they they flamethrower the uh, the head spider thing. It's um, horrific. The sound that every time that the alien bites it, the sound that it makes is blood curdling. Is the only word I can describe it. It's absolutely unnerving. You don't want to be in an environment where that thing is going going transforming or dying. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's very, very disturbing. So just incredibly well done. Uh, so then again, obviously things have just taken another step into insanity. Uh, Clark uh, is shot trying to uh, to jump Mac from behind. He's got it like a scalpel. Scalpel, yeah. That he's gonna jump um, McCready with, and McCready, who's got Gary's pistol now, uh, shoots him right in the head. Right. Um, and then they they get to the uh 
arguably the best scene in the movie the the blood test where they they yeah. figure out McCready figures out that every part of this seems to be its own uh, organism so if you were to attack it in some way it would retaliate so right. he, he decides you can if we heat up this piece of wire test everybody's blood if we stick this hot wire in the blood it'll react exactly. so you get uh, this movie for for like being a great like horror movie and and for all that it has not a ton of jump scares but you get an amazing jump scare in the blood scene in the, the blood testing sequence it's it's it's, uh, it's way more uh, disturbing than the dog transformation will will <laughs> yeah yeah and it's cool they um they did they talk about it in the commentary how they'd made like a like a practical like his hand holding the petri dish but it's not you know it's not real and then they have a thing that shoots up out of it because when he puts the hot wire yes. in there the, when it finally reacts and it's it's palmer right. um who whose blood it reacts to uh and it kind of like screams and jumps out of the petri dish yeah and then again you get that zero to 60 as all of a sudden palmer's face starts to melt and the yes. tentacles go and he's thrashing around and childs and uh, gary are get tied fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> they're tied to the chair with yeah. him which is just insane. It's just a crazy, crazy scene. Um, and then uh, they, they kill it again with the flamethrower, but Windows is a, Windows hesitates, uh, and he gets pretty much bit in half yes. um, by, the, uh, by the thing. Uh, I mean, that scene, what, just uh, talk if you would about that. That scene is insane. Oh, in incredibly insane. I mean, it, 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 we've got fire. We've got chaos. We've got... <laughs> Uh, uh, flamethrowers that are not working, people yelling, people tied up. It's it is the, the the scene itself. I think I think kind of characterizes the the entirety of the claustrophobia of the entire film. The being removed from society in Antarctica in a station in an enclosed environment with hostile weather systems that keep you inside. Now we have people who are perceived to be threats because they could be alien. Now restrained with ropes next to a flailing creature that is now, you know, in, within striking distance of all of them. It's just not good at all for anybody. Yeah, and, that, and that's a great point, too, is is when Palmer transforms right there, you're right, everyone left alive in the camp is right there for the taking. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, just a, a phenomenal scene. Again, great practical effects. Little bit of a not-so-great effect when um, Windows is, like, in its jaws and being and flopped around. It's like you a can tell it's dummy it's legs. Like but, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I'm willing to forgive it. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, but they uh, – so so Windows dies. They, they you know, Palmer is, is dispatched as well. Um, they go and they check on Blair, and they find that, that he's gone – Yes. And he's actually, not only is he gone, oh. he's tunneled under the shack and is building essentially a miniature spaceship down there. I, I mean, th that was the one thing that kind of threw me. You know, we, we've got, you know, we've got him in there restrained to a degree, eating, you know, his food out of a can. And he's gone to this industrious level. So clearly, you know, he was trying to deflect, you know, he's telling, watch out for so-and-so. Right, but, but that's but the in thing. This regard, and when was, did it get to him? Was right. he already, or or and he was trying to get himself back in, My or okay. or did something get to him on its own? It's very possible that it got to him at some point after. I don't want to be out here anymore. Right. It, after that part of it, or the other thought was when he was. Um, I think now was he helping? Just correct me if I'm wrong. Was he helping with some parts of one of the autopsies? 
Yes, yeah, he oh, did. Because he, he had did. rubber gloves on, and based on yeah. what we're seeing is that this thing is a cellular organism. It doesn't take much. It doesn't have to open up to bite you to get in you. So, I mean, if he got a slight blood splatter when he was pulling out the hearts or the liver and the organs of that, I think it was the, either the first or the second one, he could have been accidentally infected, and then it just took shape when he... He realized he was, you know, going batshit crazy to destroy it before he gets got assimilated. I mean, it's very possible in that time frame he was had some left of some of his humanity left before the organism took, completely took him over. Well, and that's a great point because there's always been something I noticed, and I never really thought about it in that regard. When he's doing the autopsy and and he's explaining things, he's got. He's got a pencil with one of those the eraser that you stick on the top, you know, the, yes. the bigger eraser. Yeah. And he taps it on the creature, and mm. then he's talking, and he kind of absentmindedly taps his own mouth with it. Mm. I, so, I wonder if we're meant to think that that's maybe where he where he's cause, cause it, No, I agree because that is not really well described at all in the film. I mean, that's you know, this is opening up a, a much more interesting line of inquiry. When did his infection actually happen? Because as we know from the the um, the the cellular on the computer screen showing how it basically assimilated natural cells and then took it over, how quickly it is. So if, uh, could it happen in a drop of blood? Clearly, it could happen because they use the metal uh, copper wiring to uh, attack the blood, and that the creature you know basically exploded from that. So clearly, a single drop of blood from this organism is enough to infect. So. You know, and I, in my opinion, anytime, you know, you see these horror films, especially the vintage, you know, the vintage ones from the 80s, you know, they're not being too, too cautious with them. They're just, oh, this, we have a hybrid organism in front of us. We've just cut it open. You know, I would, you know, have multiple layers protecting me. I would not be, you know, they had no face masks on. So you cut into it, sprays in your face. I mean, it was, it was, everything was wrong about the autopsy scene. They were a little bit too casual for something that is just inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. So no, now we know Blair has, has been infected, trying to build a ship to get out of there. Uh, someone, we don't actually see who it is. It's, it's suspected that it's Childs, but someone is spotted outside right before the lights go out and the power right. is cut. Um, and um, so they, they've sabotaged, um, they, they blow up the ship uh, and sabotage it. You know, Blair's um, uh, thing that he's been constructing. Uh, Blair gets Gary as because they kind of separate as they're trying to set everything up. And and the interesting thing here too is who's left. It's it's Gary McCready and Nalls and Nalls uh, and yeah. Childs, but we don't yeah. know where he is. Yeah, he kind of has disappeared. Yeah, and they know they they kind of accept that they're not going to get out of there alive. Right. But they're not going to let the creature get out too. So they decide to blow up the camp. Torch the camp. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course you get so so Blair gets Gary, um, and there's that kind of gross thing where he literally puts his fingers through his face, which it, is kind of crazy. In that, in seeing that, I actually stopped the, the the video last night to see that because yeah, the alien at that point in Wilford Brimley's body was just you know the face just was getting so contorted, and they did such a really good job in the film of cont facial contortions, body contortions to kind of get across the how violent this parasitic organism is. It reached into his mouth. It was just kind of pulling or peeling back his face. It was just insane. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, uh, so, so that takes out Gary. Uh, Nalls walks off, like yeah. looking for Gary, and is just never seen again. Right. And and we're we're uh, quick to assume, you know, when um, when McCready starts yelling, "Is everything right over there?" Like you know, <laughs> checking are all the are all the charges set? No, there's absolutely no no comment. And that's when we learn. 
of what 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 is to come. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, I think what they call it in the um like in the the special effects and and creating it they call it the Blair monster. The Blair monster. Um, you you get this massive amalgamation of all the different things uh, that the that the thing has assimilated. There's there's dogs in there. There's there's people. There's it's just a crazy crazy and again amazing practical effect that they right. built. It's it's just it's it's insane. There are there are heads within eyes and you know, mouths where there shouldn't be. It's just in, in, incredibly insane. And I and I read a little blip on this that um, this life form now in its in its natural form, uh, we are being shown however long this thing has been out and about perusing and carousing over the universe. The things that is assimilated now are being shown to us in a very gory drippy fluid organic <laughs> monster <laughs> yeah yeah and there's also and I, I wonder if this is almost a little bit of a nod to um invasion of the body snatchers there's very organic flower type things as well like with the dog creature early on and then again yeah. in the blair monster you kind of see those kind of petals and almost right. venus flytrap type yeah, things opening very up. much so yeah yeah so um mccready um is able to uh to blow it up with uh, with some TNT, the entire camp goes up, and then we get the uh, the awesome last scene where the music kicks in again, and and McCready's out there. He's got a he's got a bottle of Jack Daniels, and he's he's ready to to just you know go to sleep in the cold and die. And uh, Child shows up. Child shows up. Yeah, and so <laughs> it's like, well, where have you been? And they kind of have this great conversation about you know what's what's, what's going to happen. What's next? What uh, like you know. Who's who? Who isn't who? Do we have to worry about who's not who? <laughs> right, right. And you you think okay, if they're both if they've both been infected, then they're fine. They're they're right. they're not going to attack each other. Right. Uh, if one's if Childs has been infected, it's just McCready, and he's in right. a weakened state. Right. He can he can infect him. So you know, the, I think the question is there: Are they both still human at that point? Right. And my thoughts are the way they ended, and I and it sounds like some of the the different endings that uh, were being pitched around and they were really testing the audiences to see what might work best. I'm actually kind of glad they went how they did, how they went with their, they're out there together. They both got their, their they both got their blow uh, flamethrowers. Uh, they're both have their stark personalities still going because they were butting heads at all throughout the film, distrust, mistrust, and their dialogue almost, almost seems like they reached a plateau of, understanding and i think i would like to believe personally that they both end up uh human and probably freezing and dying a very a very quiet death versus one of the endings it seems like they uh, and i think uh, uh carpenter nicks this where they were going to actually have a uh rescue team come in and save him and i think john carpenter's exact words were that's too too cliche yeah that yeah, would be too a little too hollywood a little too hollywood for that to happen yeah yeah, I, I like the ambiguous nature of the ending. I think it's I, I think it's a phenomenal movie, and that's I yeah. think it's the perfect way to end it. Right. I mean, because if you look at the the all of the scenes put together as a whole, you know, we're not given the monster in every scene. There are a lot of illusions. Like at the beginning of the film, when the dog and the music again, the music, the foreboding music kicks in, you see the Malamute uh, lurking down that hallway and then it goes into the radio room and then all you see is the shadow and him turning around and then it, the screen goes to black to the next scene. So it's at that point, you couldn't quite tell who it was, but you could tell if you look by the hair who, who was actually in that radio room. 
But right. yes, you don't always have to see a violent thing to have the suspense and terror build. And I think measured out scene for scene that this was perfect delivery. And I can see why people in the beginning were, again, probably bothered by the goriness of it. But that was, you know, he was cutting edge doing stuff at this point with, you know, special effects and actually not using, you know, anything but puppetry, puppetry animatronics to get stuff visually on the screen. Because I, yeah. I think he said the initial script wasn't a lot of action. The dialogue was fairly minimal and sparse, so he had to inject just enough at various points in the film to a keep the viewer fully engaged, but also living on the edges. Like, okay, what's next? Um, how much worse is this going to get before we get to a point where all hell breaks loose? And it happened in several segments where everything just exploded, zero to sixty. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we should give credit. It was uh, the screenplay was by uh, Bill Lancaster, and it's based on a 1938 short story by John W. Campbell uh, called "Who Goes There." Um, which I've never read. I, I need to no. seek that out because I should really read that. I bet I bet that's uh, just to see kind of what they used and what they what they right. changed. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, just a phenomenal movie, and we we can wrap up here in a second. But but so as I said, I went through and tried to figure out who was the first one infected. So so here's what I came up with. Yes. Um, assuming that the blood test that they did with the, the hot wire, assuming that was 100% accurate, and we can right. trust those results. Uh, here's who had clean blood. MacReady's blood was clear. Um, yes. Childs, yep. Knowles, yep. Gary, because then Gary, when Gary's is tested, he gets that right. great, uh, that great uh, quote <laughs> right. uh, that he'd not, rather not spend the winter tied to this and fucking tied couch. Tied to this fucking couch, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Windows, his blood was clean. Right. Doc Copper, uh, who they tested after he was dead, his was clean. Right. Um, uh, Clark, his Clark. was clean. And yes. again, that was a red herring. Yep. Um, Bennings, I don't think so because he gets infected in the storeroom when the yes. uh, when they move the bodies. Right. Um, Blair, I don't think that was the first one because he's he's sab before he changes later. He's sabotaging the chopper. Yes. And, and doing all that stuff. So I think that's legit. He, I don't think he would be acting in that way. Right. Um, so uh, Fuchs, I think, is a no. He was taken over yes. uh, in the dark and burned up. I think something right. went wrong there. So right. the two potentials for being the first one are Norris, and I'm not sure because he has the heart attack. Right. But I think I think the most likely is Palmer. He even several times I noticed says like tries to suggest the, te the tests aren't going to work. Yeah, and like, things like kind that. Reflecting kind of like like he's evolving and learning how to interact with a human species. Um, how to turn, you know, kind of pit them against one another. That the science won't back what the what the what the truth is. Yeah, so th that's what I came up with. I think I think Norris is possible, but I I think I think Palmer's the the first infected, and he's someone that you could say the dog's running around camp the whole day. You right. know, he's off smoking a joint somewhere by himself. Yeah. You know, um. So and I th and, and to to my point, I think he may have been the one. He was uh, uh he may have been the one when you see the dog creeping up because that yes. was before the dog transformed in the dog cage. So yep. obviously he was basically the, the Malmute Jed, as we now know him, was <laughs> yes. very, was very busy trying to get all corners of the camp, you know, in his corner, basically, uh, of being an alien. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
So I, I was, it was fun for me to do that and kind of go through and do that checklist because I was, I was worried for a minute. Oh man, maybe there's a plot hole in this, and that if you start to break this down, it doesn't make sense because somebody right. has to be the first infected. Absolutely. But, but thankfully, it is. There's, there's a couple possibilities there. So I was, I was glad to see that. That's, uh, <laughs> The homework was done there. Um, homework was done. A plus for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so again, just a just a phenomenal movie. This is this is not just one of my favorite horror movies. This is in my top ten all time. Agreed. I, yeah. I, it it's a brilliant movie, and it's it's just so so well done. From every beat is just so everything is so measured out and done very deliberately it's just it's and i know carpenter made some shitty movies later in his career and everything but this is i think this is a masterpiece this is a Absolutely. brilliant movie and, and and it's funny that you know and if you look at this in terms uh from a cinematic perspective to kind of what the artists like the vintage artists that we know of like you know uh i i was my immediate thought was you know this is one of his masterpieces carpenter's masterpieces but didn't get a lot of good reputation and good uh, plaudits when it first came out. It wasn't, I think, until the it was finally released, uh, either VHS or whatnot, where people actually said this has become a cult classic. Very similar can be saying, said about you know artists like um, uh, Vincent van Gogh, who's was largely penniless his entire life, but now his paintings, you know, Starry Night and uh, Iris and Violets, go for millions of dollars. So it's it's there in the moment. Their art isn't necessarily as well lauded and acclaimed. It's only down the road a piece after it has had time to be out in the marketplace and people to absorb it, where it actually comes into its own and people rate it very highly as now a cult classic, you know, sci-fi horror th thriller. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it, um, it, it and it holds up. That's what's great too. There are a couple of things here and there, like I said, that you know, the effects with windows being thrown around. That's not, you know, right. that's a little a little weak, but at the same time, other than that, it, this thing holds up beautifully. And and the, and the likelihood of you know, like I said, it the it isn't just some sort of goofy alien. I mean that 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 has rubber prosthetics. I mean yes, rubber, <laughs> right. Rubber prosthetics were part of the creature as they kept it seemed like that they were reusing a lot of different parts for different scenes which i think why what was why they were able to do it so successfully so there was continuity in the evolution sure. of the creature but at the same point um you're 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 getting something just that is just horrific to look at it's not just like a you touch you and you become assimilated it's this right. thing basically gets inside you like kind of like a xenomorph but it turns your body into a shell essentially and you become its host, and you don't even realize it's happened until you've been completely simulated. And at that point, it's already too late. So they did a really good job of, you know, building a very villainous, violent creature um, that was just bent on escaping. And I think at one point in the movie, they said this that this thing is going to try to go back into hibernation. Yeah, it just wants to freeze and, and go back freeze to sleep. Wait, go back to sleep and wait till the cycle starts again. And obviously, it realizes that it is losing the battle against the humans at this point, which is, you know, because they're up against weather. They're up against each other. They're up against a formidable foe from another planet. And the the alien realizes it's not going to be able to make it off this this plot of land that they're, that they're existing on. So what right. better way to go? I'm going to just go into a dormant state and wait for the next people to find me. And then, in which case, that becomes a much worse thing because I'm sure they would transport that thing much further away than Antarctica. Right. Right. 
yeah, it's um, yeah, and that it, it makes for an interesting enemy because it's not a it it's literally out for its own survival, which right. is the absolute basis of all you know uh, functions. Right. You know, it just wants to stay alive. So yeah, and uh, yeah, the, again, like I said about it holding up. Um, my older son, who uh, like I said, likes likes these types of movies. We watched this together last year. I think probably right around Halloween. And um, it's it's always fun to show someone you know who's grown up with like the Marvel movies and things like that, and so much right. CGI stuff to see. He he thought this movie was fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, so it's, uh, it's funny you say that because a lot of you know. Hollywood cinema things now, there's a, such a heavy reliance on the technology that computers provide versus what uh, men with, you know, um, exacto blades and foam can do with, and I think I read somewhere that part of the goo that was coming off one of the, one of the alien portions of it was KY jelly, so they, in mayonnaise, so they used very readily available things yeah. to create a very, uh, very believable uh, organic looking yeah. creature and in every aspect of, a, of of its existence on in this film yeah absolutely yeah uh just a, just a phenomenal film uh and uh, i i think a, a great choice for us to start our uh our deep dives as i've been calling them into into movies and we've got i know you and i have a lot of a lot of favorite movies from the 80s that we're going to do this with and um i i, I <laughs> And I, I enjoyed watching it. I like watching the movie anyway, but doing it with a little bit of a different eye and taking notes. And, and it did allow me to notice things that I had not noticed before, right. which I thought was great. And, w- and one thing that I noticed in the film, which somehow for all the times that I've watched this movie that I didn't notice when they actually went out to the alien spaceship. Because we see um, on the videotapes that the Norwegians provided, we see them standing around the depression where the ship had been blown up and or blown out of the ice. I don't know how I missed that and all the other times I've ever seen this when they actually go out and they rappel down, get on top of the spaceship. I just, for some reason, missed that entirely. So that actually filled in a huge gap in my entire life. And I don't know how I would have missed that because I, I do pay close attention when I watch movies. But that was kind of integral. They actually identified the depression where the ship is, which clearly is a massive ship. In massive, yeah. And then we've got the where it either was thrown, as we indicated, or escaped and froze into the ice and sunk. And sunk down. So, I mean, that was a real nice kind of mid-tie-in. They didn't get too in-depth, but they could tell that there some charges had been set that the the Norse, the Norwegians um, identified that this thing was a threatening thing and they had to, you know, get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, again, it's, it's, it's very well done. They don't worry about over explaining it and even and right. McCready even says he's like he's like I you know he's like they're trying to they're all trying to work it out and McCready's like I don't know it's not like us I don't you right. know he's right they, he doesn't have the answers and that's good I actually right. like that right the fact yeah I agree that he doesn't uh is and actually he's not looking necessarily for answers he suddenly becomes very aware of that they're going to be in a life and death situation and they're up against something that they're probably going to lose to and where they are in the world and the fact that the weather system is booming down on them, that there's no help that's going to be coming. They're running out of options fast. And so he kind of turns into his you know creative self to kind of become the not so much leader by choice, but by being the more rational of the group at this point. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that whole thing is interesting too, the whole hierarchy and how, how things break down and yeah. mixed in with that distrust factor uh, really, really helps amplify the tension. 
Totally does. Yeah, just it's just so good. Such a such a good movie. Um, all right, well we're we're past the hour mark here, but I, I think we've I think we've done a pretty good job of hitting all the uh, the high points. Um, Absolutely have. Yeah. Anything else uh, we should we should talk about or? No, I, I think I think we got it. I mean, I'm like I said, this uh, this is the pinnacle sci-fi horror film for me. You know, this you know bodes and in, goes into that arena of you know The Exorcist. Uh, invasion of the body snatchers aliens you know alien rather in that regard that whole era of the early 80s of just these really groundbreaking films that now have so much more relevance as being kind of like iconic to not just fans but also to hollywood types alike as looking back and saying that movie while not highly regarded back in the day is now at the pinnacle of its game that opened doors for people who use that as influences for future films to in in and in, in you know directional options yeah absolutely absolutely I think uh, I think we're at the end of uh, episode three. Then, sweet. <laughs> well, thank you, Brad, for joining me. As always, this was super fun. I, I love this movie great. so much, and uh, it was great to to take a really uh, uh, deeper look at this movie. Absolutely awesome. Well, thank you so much, my friend. Anytime, my brother. All right. Well, we are going to wrap up then. This has been episode three of Ego, the '80s Geek Out podcast. We will be back next month. Until then, we'd just like to remind you that we would prefer not to spend all winter tied to this fucking couch. Listening to Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast with Ian Clark and Brad Anderson. We are a part of the Freebooters Network. Check out thefreebootersnetwork.com to listen to all the awesome podcasts on the network. We also invite you to check out our sponsor, Geek Nation Tours, at geeknationtours.com and interact with our Facebook page to ask questions, offer comments, and critiques. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.